21, chapter 20. We're going to take a brief departure from our study on the commands of Christ, the distinctive distinctives of God's commands or Jesus' commands. I want to talk about the resurrection today in John chapter 20. Easter is always fun at a pastor's home, um, especially the week prior to that. You never know what all is going to happen, um, but usually I know it's not going to be easy. Remember last year I was struggling with sickness. Uh, so this this week, um, I'm the last man standing uh, in our home. Uh, it started with, with Canaan, uh, and then um, Julie, and then last night, Molly, uh, and then Evan in the middle of the night. And so I've been drinking elderberry syrup and trying to stay healthy, and I appreciate your prayers. Uh, but there's just something about the last man standing. I'm, I've just got you know 30 more minutes to go, and I can go home and collapse. You know it'll be okay. Uh, but that's kind of how it is sometimes with the the pastor's home uh, coming Easter week. Uh, but you know I was thinking about it that much of what we're talking about is about the last man standing, uh, the one who has not been impacted by sin, no, no sin, no sickness found within Jesus, and throughout history. We have seen man fall one after the other, died, died, died. Good men, good women, bad men, powerful, doesn't matter. And then there's this figure of Jesus, if you believe the reports about him, where he dies and says, that that didn't do it, I'm going to come back. And so what do you do with a person like that? And he says, not only did I survive sin uh, and the effects of sin because I didn't sin, not only did I survive death, but I've got the power within me that if you let me touch you, I can give you life. You remember playing freeze tag? Remember that? There's always that one person in it that not only could they not be uh, frozen, they, that if they tagged you, then you were unfrozen. It's, it's that picture of Jesus that says, if you let me touch you, not only will death not impact me, but I can extend life to you. That's the picture of the resurrection. And so in John chapter 20, verse 1 through 18, we have an account of some of his followers uh, on that very first day and, and meeting Jesus and uh, coming to the tomb for a purpose other than what happened. They thought they were going to um, dignify the body of Jesus and his death, uh, but find instead that he's very much alive. And so we're going to look primarily at one person, Mary, and Mary Magdalene, as we consider her reaction, and, well, make some three observations about belief in the resurrection. And so, if you'll stand with me as we read John chapter 20, verse 1 through 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. You may be seated. As we read the accounts of Jesus and Mary and the disciples and this resurrection, we have the luxury of reading the whole account. We've been able to read within five minutes the prophecy that Jesus gave over three times recorded in Matthew. And then again, the night of the Passover, Lord's Supper, when he tells them that he will die and that he he will rise again. We have the luxury of reading that within five minutes of still reading the same account of Jesus being buried dying on the cross and we we wonder at this and we think why couldn't they put it together why was mary having in her mind to go to put spices on the body of jesus didn't she hear the prophecies of jesus in fact i think it's pretty fascinating as we look at what mary goes through before it ever clicks wherever clicks that the person she's in talking is talking to is indeed Jesus. And so I wanted you to first understand about resurrection belief. The resurrection belief requires divine help. Belief in the resurrection requires divine help. God has to help you believe that. Has to help you get it. You understand that to be a follower of Christ is not something you just say, well, you know, I feel like I'm going to be a Christian today. I'm going to, I feel like I'm going to come into God's family. You understand that it is first beginning with God working in your heart, opening up your eyes. And if you have in your mind, you know, I think I'm going to come at some time when it's more convenient to me. Or I, I've got some things I want to do first. And then I'm going to get my life. You know, I used to think things like this. And it was scary. I said, you know, I, let me get through college first. And let me just enjoy some things I want to enjoy. And then maybe sometime, maybe right before I get married, I'll, I'll get my life right with God. 
That doesn't work. You can't do that with God. You understand, looking at Mary's example here, Mary, there's a part of her that deeply desires to see Jesus Christ. And yet she can't see it until God opens up her eyes. Consider, what did Mary go through? What were the clues outside the outright prophecies that Jesus gave? You remember in Matthew 26, and I think about like 61, 63, the enemies of Jesus? They remembered the prophecies of Jesus. And they said to the Roman rulers, you know what? This, this blasphemer, this false teacher said that, that he would rise from the dead. And they remembered that, and therefore they sought out guards. It's a funny how the enemies of Jesus remember that, but, the, but Mary and disciples, they don't seem to get it. But here they are. What has Mary encountered up to this point? She goes there, and the Bible tells us in other accounts that not only was Mary, but there were several other women that were there with her uh, when they first encounter the empty tombs, the soldiers were gone, and that there's an angelic announcement that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so she sees the, the linen cloth there, and she tells the disciples, notice what she tells them there. She, she says, look, they've taken Jesus' body, and we don't know where they put it. She's encountered all this, but she's still not clicking with it. And so then you've got verse 12, two angels in white speaking to her, <laughs> and and. She said, they ask her, woman, why are you weeping? And she says, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And we know from other accounts that the angels are saying, he's risen from the dead. But what does she do next? Verse 15. Verse 14. Then she turns around and sees Jesus standing there. All right, you get that? Empty tomb. Soldier's gone, angelic announcement. She's telling the disciples, the disciples come and they believe, or at least a couple of them do. And then she meets two other angels and they announce it. And then she's still not believing. She turns around, sees Jesus in his face, and look what she says. (laughs) She makes this plea. She's still crying. Whom are you seeking? She says to Jesus, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She asked Jesus that. Do you see all that she's going through? Now, does she know what Jesus looks like? She is an intimate follower of Jesus. She's been there with him many times, has been a supporter. She knows what Jesus looks like. What am I presenting to you is that There needed to be divine help for a person who had walked with Jesus, seen Jesus, heard the prophecies of Jesus, had angels declare to her, but still, until God opened her eyes, she couldn't get it. Now, let me just present to you, for those of us who have lived 2,000 years since these accounts, do you think it's going to be any less for us that if we're going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that is going to be done by divine initiative in our lives. God is going to open up our eyes to help us understand that. Now, why is that the case? Well, first of all, I would just present to you that there is a part of us that if Jesus rose from the dead is, finds that a little bit scary. Because if Jesus rises from the dead, and I'm not just talking about resuscitation. 
You know, the Old Testament talks about people coming from the dead again. In fact, Jesus rose, raised Lazarus from the dead, but it was really just a miraculous resuscitation. How do we know that? Because they died again. They didn't keep on living. They, they, there is tombs. They, they were placed into the tomb. So there was a resuscitation, but Jesus is unique in that there is no resuscitation. He kept on living. All right, so there's a part of us that, that says, you know what, I'm not really interested in that because if that is true, then that means I lose control. And we, as much as we want to lift up Jesus, we're not very interested in losing control. We, um, last weekend I was involved in judging, uh, judging performances of which my daughter was taking part, and I was, uh, we had different people, and we had them three at a time, and, and I was judging them with a few others. And wouldn't you know it, of, of about six to seven stations in which there's di- different judges, my daughter ends up at my station uh, with a group of, of two others. Now, none of the other judges know that I have a daughter, much less what she looks like and that she's there. And I start thinking through the scenario of what this might be. If I, if I stay on and judge her, uh, well, then I can give her really good marks because she is going to do better than everyone else. I mean, you know, there's no doubt about it. Um, But then I thought, well, what if the other judges don't agree? And what if their vote overwhelms my vote? And then somehow I can explain to my daughter how she didn't win. I thought, well, that doesn't sound much fun either. Um, And so I quickly came to the conclusion that the only winning solution here is for me to get out of this, this, this case. Let me uh, recluse myself and, and say, okay, uh, I, I can't do this. I've got invested interest in here. I cannot think objectively about this. Let me just present to you that when you start thinking about God and thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there's sometimes, many times, understandably, doubts that take place. Did Jesus, I mean, that doesn't happen. There are scientific facts why people should not, do not rise from the dead. How can you present to me that that is the case? I just want to just also get you thinking that in this judgment that you are invested in over Jesus, you uh, yourself have invested interest. And I would would present to you that you are not an impartial judge over whether Jesus Christ raised from the dead. You see, have you ever thought that maybe one of the things that we should honestly do is doubt our doubts. We can doubt God. We can doubt resurrection. We can doubt all things presented in the Bible if we want to, and, and we do. But has it ever occurred to you that maybe we should doubt our doubts? I mean, if you're really going to be a skeptic, maybe we should be a skeptic over our skepticism and ask ourselves, am I really a true impartial judge of this? And I would just bring to your attention that you have invested interest called your control over your life. And it's like your daughter. You want to keep it and you want to treasure it. And if this is really the case, that Jesus has risen from the dead, then all claims are off that you might have over authority of your life. Just something to think about. So what do we do? First of all, understand that you are not impartial. Have a healthy doubt of your own skepticism and why you're a skeptic. Maybe you had a bad parent that was a believer in Jesus Christ. 
Perhaps maybe you have bad Christian society. You know, bad Christians still happen to good people. And, and maybe that's a part of it that you're, you're thinking about. But just be honest with why you have these doubts. Why they play a part. That's the first step. The second thing I would encourage you to do is to say, you know what? If what he's saying is true, if, if what happens to Mary is really indeed because God opens up her eyes, then, God, I don't know if you do or do not exist and this, all this did happen, but you know what? It's not going to hurt to pray and ask God to open up your eyes. God, if this is really true, I don't even know if you're existent or not, but I want to, I want to be an honest searcher here will you open up and help me understand this if this is true i happened in mary's case but you know we see other examples like peter and john and peter and john don't seem to have the same obstacles in their heart and mind that mary seems to have because the bible says to us that they ran at the word they ran john is evidently a little faster than peter uh, and they get there, and they look in, and they see the linen clothes lying there. In verse 6, Peter came in, also saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. And then verse 8, then the other disciple had reached the tomb first, also went in, and, and he saw and believed, yet did not understand the scripture. So, let me just present to you, that these two also believe because of God's initiative. Who put the linen cloth there in such a way? Who folded it up? You know, you don't do that if you're rushed and, and you're trying to get out of the tomb so you can get air. You're not going to worry about that. This has a, a sense of, you know what, a luxurious timing. I can fold up this cloth. I'm not really concerned about it. And I'm just going to place it there. This is of Jesus' doing so that Peter and John could come in and see the facts and see the linen cloth there, put two and two together and realize, you know what? Jesus is risen from the dead. I don't understand it, but I believe he's not dead. That also is God's initiative. Now, I just want to present this thought to you. If you won't have a sense of resurrection belief, understand that God opens up your heart and mind to do that. But let me bring something else to you. A second observation about resurrection faith, and that's simply this. It's still rational. Resurrection belief is still rational. In other words, we talk about this and we say, well, you know, you come to salvation by faith. Ultimately, you're saved not by reason, but by faith. And that is true. You are saved not by reason, but by faith. But that does not mean that this faith is not reasonable. It does not mean that this faith is not rational. That there is some sense to say, you know, I can see how I can believe that. You see that case with Peter and John, where they put things together and say, you know what, this is rational. No, I can't explain it. It is beyond, but if there is a God that comes in flesh, then it stands to reason that there will be some things that God does in flesh that blows nature away. That's reasonable to conclude. You see, you cannot rejoice in what your mind rejects. You cannot rejoice and what your mind says is not true. That's called delusion. It's not reality. What God's called us to do is to worship in spirit and in truth, which involves 
your brain. Now, does that mean that you're going to understand everything? No, 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 no. But there will be enough to understand to declare to someone, I believe it. And it is rational. My mind does not reject it. Sometimes there are people that say to you, you know, I only believe what I can see. If I get evidence for it, I believe it. The thing is, is no one truly operates that way. I would just present to you depositing your money in a bank is a very good observation, illustration of acting without always faith and understanding. Because, I mean, you put your money in this little tube and it sucks up. And some person whom you do not know is behind a window somewhere and says, okay, yeah, it's in your account. Okay. And you just put in your paycheck. Is that is that faith? Is that believing in things unseen? I would say that seems to have some marks of that. You see, we can't really operate apart from faith. And you can say, well, I'm going to believe in science and I'm going to believe only what uh, observation gives to us. But there is going to be a point where science can only take you so far. And then when you get to the point of matter exists and why does matter exist? That's where your mind blows a little bit. And then the scientists will have to say there is a faith proposition at the heart. You're not getting out of here without a faith proposition. It's which faith proposition you're going to hold on to. Which one you can treasure. And so really, at this point, is transferring your trust. You see, you can say, I don't believe that people can rise from the dead. I mean, that doesn't happen. And so what you're saying is, I believe in what I observe. And I trust in only what I observe. And I can believe in what other people have told me. But I'm not going to believe in what Jesus is saying. And I'm going to let this belief of myself, my observation, what science tells me, to trump over anything else. You see, what Mary is doing here is not building faith as much as transferring her trust. She's transferring her trust of nobody rises from the dead to, oh, Jesus rises from the dead. It's, it's a, a simple transfer. See, you need to understand something. Jews were not very eager to believe that individuals can rise from the dead. Greeks certainly were not. Romans were not. And so the Jews believed in a general resurrection, that yeah, one day everybody's going to rise from the dead. And that was a question in John 11 uh, that Jesus gives to Martha. Martha says, well, yeah, one day there's going to be a resurrection. And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. I am the resurrection and the life. I I am that. It's not just a general resurrection. The power is me. It's, It's from me. And so when he individually rises from the dead, he and the Jews believe it. Mary believes it, Peter believes it, John believes it, and the very beginning of this is all believers of Jews for the most part. It is very unlike Jews to do that. What are Jews known for? Well, we shall worship the one God only. Which group would you ever pick out to say, you know what, let's say there is God coming flesh, along with God the Father and God the Spirit. Would you ever peg the Jew to do that? You see, it's very unlikely but yet, you see, the, there is rational evidence for this. It's interesting, just the account that I'm reading from this morning. Mary Magdalene being the first witness. In fact, for a while, 
the only witnesses were women. I mean, they're running back and forth, and, and for a while the, the testimony was that there's some women that are declaring that, that Jesus has risen from the dead. You, you see this in the two going to Emmaus, and they're talking about this, and they're upset by it. Why is that interesting? Well, in that day and time, women were not regarded as legal witnesses, even in a court of law. And so for this time period that the only witnesses for a little while were women was very counterculture. In other words, if you were inventing a story and say, let's make there, let's make there to be a Messiah, let's make there to be Jesus and that he's God, you would not write and invent a story where the only witnesses were women at the first point. In fact, interesting enough, when you get to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 9, you have the early church accounting of the resurrection. And interesting enough, Paul goes in and he starts talking about men Peter, Cephas, and other disciples, and besides that, 500 other men at one time witnessing Jesus' resurrection or our appearances after the resurrection. Interesting enough, in the early church, they don't even seem to mention the women. John was written as one of the later Gospels. And John's kind of filling in the blanks and says, you know what, there's been a little bit of reluctance to acknowledge this. Let me, let me just bring to your attention that it was the women first. Why is that significant? Because it speaks to us that this accounting isn't made up. It's recorded that way because it's how it happened. It is a rational thought that, the, that was presented to us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we say that, that Jesus is risen from the dead, we're not saying something that our mind rejects. It is something our mind says, you know, it's plausible. It can happen. And when you look at the very fact that there's a Christian church to begin with, how do you explain the existence of the Christian church when over 2,000 years people wanted to get rid of the Christian church? Had the means to get rid of the Christian church? Had the resources to, to blow up any scandals? To say, look, if it's all hints upon Jesus, let's, we've got the motive, we don't like Jesus, we don't like this movement, and we've got the resources, let's show the body of Jesus, let's show the tomb, and they had the means to do it. Why is there still a church today? Can you explain it apart from Jesus' resurrection? When you look at how the men's lives were changed when they were once like Peter denying Jesus multiple times at the night of the cross, and then you see over 50 days later, he's preaching to thousands of people along with all the other disciples. And they keep on preaching and they're under threat, but they keep on preaching and they, and they are persecuted and they keep on preaching. And they're saying, if you don't shut up about this Jesus, then you're going to kill. But they keep on preaching to the point where many of them are killed very violently. How do you account for that? Apart from the resurrection. Belief in the resurrection requires divine help, but it also is rational. But there's one other observation I want you to, to get here. And that's the encounter that Mary has. As you see with Jesus, he says some pretty interesting things. He thinks he's a gardener. He says, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. <laughs> I love that fact. The divine initiative. God calls you by name. When you feel that conviction of your heart and you feel and sense the, the need for forgiveness, it is God calling your name. He knows you. Just as he knows Mary. And at the name of Mary, her eyes open up. You need to understand. 
that when there is conviction of your heart and you need forgiveness and you say, I, 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 you know, I, I feel kind of like I, I need to make some decision about Jesus Christ. I, I sense this uncomfortable with this unease in my heart. Do you know that is God calling your name? He's asking for you. And he says, Mary, he's turned and said to him in Aramaic, Abonai. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he said these things to him. What does this mean? I've not yet ascended. I think part of the key is understanding what she's doing. He says, do not cling to me. And this is not just touching, because we find just a few verses later, Jesus invites Thomas and others, touch me. He says, touch me to help produce faith and help them understand faith. And Thomas and some of the others invites them to do that. But he, then he says to Mary, don't, don't. What's the reason? Well, it's not just don't touch me. Don't cling to me. Now, imagine Mary. She's very much connected to Jesus. And in her mind, for the last few days, she has been mourning the absence of Jesus. And now the very body of Jesus has been removed. She can't find him. And she's kind of going down this fit of, I just need to see the body of Jesus. And so once seeing the body of Jesus, what does a person like Mary do don't ever go away I don't ever want to lose you yeah I'm holding on tight don't go away and so Jesus is saying not saying don't touch me don't cling to me don't make me stay here what you want I can't do yet what does she want she wants him to never leave again and that's why she, he responds the way he does. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What is he talking about? I don't, I don't think that he's talking about Saturday. He's not talking about what he's been doing the day before. But what he's talking about is what yet is in front of him. And what yet is in front of him is, is the ascending process as he is making his appearance known. And people are witnessing that Jesus is alive. That it culminates uh, in Acts chapter 1 with all the witnesses around him. And Jesus ascending up from the earth. Rising to be Next to God the Father. Why does Jesus ascend that? Why doesn't Jesus just disappear like he does sometimes? Sometimes he appears and sometimes he disappears and, and witnesses. Jesus is ascending to show them a message that he is no longer limited to one spot. He is rising above earth and geographical boundaries. He's rising up above time itself to say that he ruled over all time, over all places. And now, Mary, what you really want, you want, you want my presence there with you and never go away. Now that I'm ascending to God the Father, I can send the Holy Spirit as representative of my reign. And now you get what you want, Mary. I will never leave you. I'll go away from you. Through the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, if Jesus was here, wouldn't you just want to just come up to him and say, where you go, I go? 
I, I just want to learn from you. I want to hear from you. I want to know what you're like. I want to know how you laugh. I want to know what you get angry about. I just want to be where you are. And Jesus is saying to you, if that option was there, and the option of having the Holy Spirit with you, it is better that you have the Holy Spirit with you than I'm here in bodily form. Because I can't go everywhere you go. But the Holy Spirit can go wherever you go. And I will send you to the ends of the earth. But don't fear, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what's the third thing, third observation that belief in the resurrection has present implications? He's saying to Mary, you know what, it's okay. I'm going to send, and when I send, you can cling all you want to God through His Spirit. What does that mean? Well, I came across a testimony uh, this is of um, a mother of a young lady I went to high school with and, and a friend. Her dad um, had early onset Alzheimer's about 15 years ago. And just a couple weeks ago, he passed away at the age of 64. Uh, so this is fairly early in their life. And, and she, the wife, has been blogging and journaling some of this and become an artist and start drawing but she wrote this past week what she says that her is her last post and it's called all i know did that really happen the events of the last month seem so surreal no matter how long we prepare for the loss of a loved one it is a tremendous loss still life goes on babies need to be changed children go to school women shop for spring dresses and men set up their tea times the apple store is still crowded Traffic backs up at the stoplights, but white. A life was just lost. It happens every day. Times like these make me question my faith. Is God really real? Why didn't he answer my prayers? Why did such a good man have to suffer in such a way? Why did my children have to experience this trauma watching their daddy leave? This has to have been the most intense week of my life. Words cannot express the amount of sadness and love that has passed through my heart, soul, and mind in such a short amount of time. Short, but long. Jerry's journey was so long, but his end was so short, so final. These are questions that probably will never be answered. However, now that two weeks have passed, my head is beginning to process what happened. I can see so many prayers that were answered. First, my greatest longing was to have Jerry surrounded by those who loved him. I could hardly bear the thought of him slipping away. That prayer was answered and his last breath was taken while being cradled in his arms. His children were there. For seven days, the love spilled out was almost tangible. Second, I cried out, Lord, that Jerry would never have to be moved from the place he now had called home. And when it came time for me to decide to move him because of Medicaid requirements, that prayer was answered. Jerry was able to finish his days surrounded and cared for by his closest caregivers. The timing was uncanny. My son, who is usually in Los Angeles, just happened to be in town for a photo shoot when Jerry began to take his last decline. We were all there, a beautiful night aide saying, oh, how I love Jesus. I've never met her before. Such gentleness and strength I've witnessed. The response from friends was overwhelming. I cannot even fathom it. This more than likely would be my last post. It has been an honor to serve in such a way, and I only hope this blog has provided strength and hope through a seemingly impossible journey. So is my faith shaken? It may have been rocked a bit, but it's still firm. 
all knows this. It is a fact that this man called Jesus was crucified. He gasped for his last breath, just as Jerry did. He cried out, why have thou forsaken me? He knew anguish and suffering. Was Jesus merely a man? All I know is that his disciples, afraid and with complex emotions, went into hiding. But when Jesus appeared before them, they must have seen something. Thomas actually felt his nail-pierced hands. Jesus truly was their risen Savior, and they were willing to be crucified themselves afterwards. So if Jesus was who he said he was and was willing to provide a way for eternal life with God the Father of this universe, then I suppose his promises are true. Jesus is no longer suffering, and he is now at peace with his Heavenly Father, and he has no memory of what just happened, while it may be excruciatingly sad for those who are left behind. It can't be any better for those who are moving forward free from suffering and into the gracious light of the Almighty God. Jerry will miss you. You left a huge impact on so many lives. You are God's gift to me, and I will be forever grateful. You see, belief in the resurrection has present implications. It changes how we view everything. If we view that life here is temporary, because one has come into this life and shown that his life is everlasting, and that if we know Jesus, then we also know eternal life then the travails, the adversities, the sorrows are short and passing in light of eternity. And all the more that even in the midst of that, God's Spirit is with us. And Jesus says, don't cling to me yet. I've yet to ascend to my Father and your Father, my God, and your God. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a product of the resurrection and the ascension. And so let me ask you, is the Father of Jesus your Father? Is His God your God? It comes through Jesus. Let's pray.